there, and there was a frog. And it was sitting there, and the scorpion went over to the frog and said, you know, I need to get across this pond, and I just cannot swim. Could you let me maybe have a ride over to the uh, other side? And the frog replied, well, matter of fact, you know, it's funny you asking me that because I was just going to hop across to the other side. So, yeah, sure, get up on my back and I'll give you a ride, but understand, no stinging. Oh, I promise, the scorpion said, I won't sting you. I just want to get to the other side. So the frog said, hop on. They leaped across the lake. As soon as they got across or the pond, the other side, the scorpion started to get off. But before he got off, he had to just give him a stinger. So he stung him. The frog fell over on its side. As it was lying there dying, looked up at the scorpion in disbelief and asked, How could you do this to me? I gave you a ride across a pond just like you asked. And you promised not to sting me. Now look what you've done. Scorpion simply shrugged its shoulders and, or little legs or whatever you want to call it and said, it's my nature to sting. Scorpions sting because that's what they are wired to do. The only way to change that characteristic is how well if a scorpion was to be or undergo a radical transformation of their nature then that would happen but that's not possible is it in the same way sinners sin because it's their nature to sin and the only way to change that is by a radical transformation of that sinner's nature and that's where the story differs from the scorpion and the human. Because there can be a radical transformation with the human, can't it? That human nature can take on a radical transformation. In other words, a person can be born again and, have a, and be uh, born as a new creature in Christ. Old things passed away, behold, all things becoming new. Conversion is at the basis of that foundation. And this is so very important. You see, the point is that sinful human beings cannot approach God in their own power, let alone growing spiritually of their own. They've got to realize that they need the Lord. They've got to allow the Holy Spirit to do the work in their life in drawing them to the Lord and then they become a new creature in Christ. Well, today we're going to be looking at that story in this contrast. This is about, the first part of it is about children being brought to Jesus. Now this is not some kind of child salvation uh, that's happening here. This was something that was common among the Jews. In other words, they would bring their children for blessings and prayer to the rabbi. 
uh, you know, and parents uh, were doing this because they recognized Jesus as some great teacher, didn't they? Uh, some great miracle performer. And they were doing, they were bringing the children to Jesus and then the disciples said, hey, you know, you're troubling him too much. He's not doing his, able to do his, what he's come to do and so you need to stop this. And Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Now, why did he say that? We're going to go back to chapter 18 and you remember him talking about children and the kingdom of God? You see, Matthew tells his story and he's giving us a contrast here between children and the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler, which we'll come to in just a few moments, is coming to Jesus wanting that eternal life. And we need to look at, first of all, and understand some stages in humanity that are very important. Stages that represent our lives. You see, there's the baby stage, there's a toddler stage, there's the adolescent stage, there's a young adult stage, the middle adults, and the older adults. There's a common denominator between the beginning, the babies, and the old, older adults. And what is that? Dependency. The babies needed, children needed dependency of their parents to be brought to Jesus, right? And older adults get to the point where, unfortunately, they began to also need that dependency of someone else to take care of them. But there is a difference between the babies and the young children and the older adults and that dependency. And that is the in-between with the young adults. When we reach that, reach that teenage years and we're looking forward to going to college and we're looking forward to being out on our own, there is a tendency for and a desire for what? Self-sufficiency. The mark of that in-between stage of that adulthood is growing into self-sufficiency and enjoying that self-sufficiency, if you will. Getting out on your own, doing your own thing. And so Matthew tells us that this man is young and rich, the rich young ruler. And we refer to this passage as the rich young ruler because he's identified that way, especially in the other two Gospels. He's rich and young here, but he's a rich young ruler. And this means that this man was one who had official standing, one who recognized, was recognized as a leader, a ruler, maybe even a member of Sanhedrin, we don't know. But he was a triple threat. He was young, he was rich, and he was a ruler. He was self-sufficient. And Luke in his gospel even tells us that he was extremely rich. And then Mark, in his gospel, tells us that he was a ruler and he was rich. And so you, you probably heard about 
or saw the show The Rich and the Famous. I didn't watch but maybe one time of it and every time that they showed the rich and the famous it wasn't the rich and the famous it was their possessions their homes that they lived in you didn't see the rich and famous well you're you're going to be told about a story here of the rich and the famous here here's a contrast as I said earlier about the little children and they're being brought to Jesus as opposed to the rich young ruler who came on his own to Jesus. You see, the rich young ruler is different from the children because the rich young ruler is self-sufficient. The children are not. They're not that type A personality either. They're being brought. With the youth, it's self-sufficient or self-sufficiency. He has a physical strength. And he has a help. He's not dependent upon anyone else. Not even Jesus. So the young man's agenda we're going to look at as opposed to the children's. And behold, one came to him and said, Teacher, let's jump over to the, uh, we're going to jump back and forth between children and rich young ruler. What good thing shall I do that I may inherit or obtain eternal life. Now, first of all, he did recognize Jesus as a teacher. And so that shows an indication that he uh, recognized him as a person who knew the word, who taught the word, who had authority and knowledge of the word. Perhaps he was addressing Jesus as a prophet. We don't know. But whatever we do know is, is that he came to Jesus and he recognized him as a teacher, but this was not as the Messiah. Second of all, the man asked Jesus, what shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? He's identifying himself as lost, isn't he? Whether he, doesn't, whether he realizes what all is involved there or not, he is identifying himself. He doesn't have the assurance of eternal life. And his approach to obtaining eternal life, though, was not what Jesus told him he needed to, uh, to have. That leads us to the third part. The reason the man's approach to obtaining eternal life uh, was, being, was wrong was because of his self-sufficient per perspective. He thought that he could do something to obtain eternal life. But isn't that the way that so many of us live today? I mean, the, the culture, the world. What can I do to have eternal life? Well, if I live this way, then I will make it to heaven. And you see, the title of the message is Defining Deviancy Down. And I'm going to explain that in just a moment. This is a problem when we think that we can work our way into heaven. We define deviancy down. So, in opposition to the rich young ruler's approach was a young children's approach. In Matthew 19, 13 through 15, then some children were brought to him so that he may lay hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the children alone. 
and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And laying on his hands on them, he departed from there. It was a common practice, as I said, to bless the children as they came. The main point of the, massive, uh, the passage here, though, is contrast. Matthew is contrasting the self-sufficient rich young ruler in, who is trying to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven by human acts of righteousness as opposed to the little children who were brought to Jesus and who were dependent upon someone else. In other words, it's works versus faith. Simple as that. The children are an illustration of how one must enter the kingdom of heaven by faith, by humility, and by dependency. If you look in Matthew 18, 1 through 6, as I told you, he mentioned this earlier with the disciples and, and others. He said, at the same time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is greatest? In the kingdom of heaven, they, have, they were having that discussion. Man, I want to be sitting on this throne. I want to be sitting over here. You know, I want to be doing this, doing that. And he called a child to himself and stood him in their midst and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like a child. In other words, you're not going to be converted outside of being humble, dependent, and coming in faith. You shall not enter the kingdom of heaven unless you become like this child. Whoever then humbles himself as a child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it's better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depths of the sea. So he's talking about, man, don't, you know, the importance of a childlike faith, of coming to him and, and having that dependency and needing the Lord Jesus Christ and not coming in your own so-called righteousness. These children in Matthew 19 did not come of their own, nor did they try and prove their goodness with self-sufficient acts. They came by way of their parents. They were dependent upon someone else. They came by faith, trusting their parents to bring them. They were humble individuals. When a person comes to Christ, it isn't of themselves. I know we a lot of times talk and we give our testimony and we say, boy, you know, I went through this and then uh, it got my attention and then I, I came to the Lord. Well, all of that happened because the Holy Spirit was drawing you. He was taking you to Jesus. He was bringing you to Jesus. You see, when a person comes to Christ, it isn't of themselves. They come because of a drawing of the Holy Spirit. They believe God and His promises. And they humble themselves before God, receiving His forgiveness and eternal life. A childlike faith. So this man in chapter 19 came thinking that there was some good deed that he could do to obtain eternal life. And he thought there was something he could do to be righteous. 
But we know that's impossible. What's impossible with men, though, is possible with God. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, there's none righteous, no, not one. Oh, that means you. And that means me. Wow. I dare you say that I'm not righteous. Well, I don't have to. God says it. Okay? So, once we get that clear, then we can take that next step towards God. There is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned. I dare you to say that I've sinned. Well, you have sinned because God says you've sinned. You're a sinner because by nature you're a sin and you have sinned. You're not without sin, so you must admit that you're a sinner and that you've fallen short of God's glory, the glory of God. So you're saying that I'm a sinner. You're saying that I've fallen short of his glory. Then you're saying that I can't make it into heaven because of my sin nature. Oh, you're right. You're dead right. Well, not dead right, but you're, yeah, you are. I guess you are dead in your sins. Okay, you're dead right. Yes, you're right on target. Well, how can I get into heaven? Well, you know, God, where it's impossible with men, but it's possible with God. God said, he who knew no sin became sin for us, or, or Paul did in Corinthians about God, uh, for us that we could become the righteousness, not of men, but the righteousness of God. How? In Christ Jesus, coming like children to Jesus. He's the one that died on the cross. He's the one that was buried. He died for our sins. He was buried for us and rose again for us so that we could have eternal life. Wow. That makes it too easy. Oh, well. You go dying on the cross, living a holy life here on earth. See how easy it is. Christ was tempted in all ways but never sinned. He went all the way to the cross bearing our sins, knowing that many would never receive him, but dying for the sins of the world and being buried and being raised again and suffering as he did on the cross. You call that easy? But he knew that without the shedding of blood, there would be no forgiveness of sin. So Jesus reveals how absurd the rich man's request was when the rich man, or rich, rich young ruler, asked Jesus, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. I like that. He's, he's getting his attention. It sounds like he's talking about work salvation, doesn't it? But let's look at it. Uh, there, there's some subtle things here. Jesus says, it's interesting that you bring up good first. That's what he says. In other words, you're implying that you're good. But the word of God, let me tell you, tells us that there's only one who is good. And that is God. That means nothing that you can do can change your condition. That's the subtleness. That's, that's what he's basically trying to get the man to see. But since you're wanting to talk about good, okay, we'll talk about good. Let's just give you a little teaching lesson on being good. 
If you want to be good, then keep the commandments of God. Now, as I said, is Jesus promoting a works-type salvation? No. We know that. Jesus is saying, if anyone can prove to live perfectly by and perfectly by the law, then they would be considered righteous, blameless, perfect. But there is not one person born into this world other than Jesus who can live up to that perfect standard. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as Paul tells us. So Jesus wasn't promoting a work salvation. Jesus was using the law to reveal to this man his sinful state, his fallen state, his inability to work for his salvation. Isn't that the purpose of the law? The main purpose is to what? Show us our need for Christ. The law comes and slays us, showing our need for salvation, Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7. No one can be saved by the law, but the young man's audacity, man, i tell you what, it knows no bounds here. First, to ask what he could do to obtain eternal life, but then we have a lot of that audacity, don't we? Second, the young man asked Jesus, which commandments must he keep? In other words, I can do it. <laughs> Goodness. Which ones? The rich young ruler's response should have been what? No one can perfectly keep your commandments. The commandments of God. There's no way. I mean, even David of old said, In sin did my mother, my mother conceive me. I'm born into sin. Why ask which commandments? Well, you know, by the time that the Old Testament was completed, the Old Testament time, I think there was around 635 commandments. Whew, that's a lot to keep, isn't it? Well, what they did, the rabbinical list, knew that and knew how impossible it was. So what they did was they began to rank these commandments as they saw importance. And there was a list of the greater ones, a list of the lesser ones, and the in-between. And he was asking for which rank, but probably, should he keep. So we're going to go, Jesus shifts a direction. He cuts to the heart of the matter by going to the Ten Commandments. But he doesn't just stay there. Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What did he say? Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Later on in, in chapter 22. So Jesus is naming from the second tablets that were written, uh, the, uh, the ones that were directed more towards our human relationships. And then he threw in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, because it's important. In Leviticus 19, 18, and, and uh, so uh, these commandments Jesus listed, they all deal with the relationship to others. And he didn't go to the first tablet dealing primarily with the relationship to God. And so, but this was for a reason, because he was trying to get to the heart 
of the, uh, the matter. He was trying to get to the rich, rich young ruler's heart. And the young man responded to Jesus by saying, All of these I have kept, what am I still lacking? If the man had been really alert to the law like he should have been, and sensitive to his condition as pertaining to the law and God, he would have realized that Jesus really left one of the commandments out of the second tablet that he was referring to. And that was very important because he was trying to get the man's attention, I believe. He was trying to, you know, it would have been great if the man said, Oh, but Jesus, you left out one commandment, thou shalt not covet. Uh, you got it right now. Who's coveting? Huh? But the man didn't. You see, he doesn't realize where his heart lies. That's why he, he didn't even see it. And where does his heart lie? In deception. He's not seeing his sin. What, what have I not done, Jesus, in other words? To covet our possessions is sin. And, and Jesus is directing the man to the condition of his heart. Not some outward thing, but the condition of his heart. To covet. It may be one of the most subtle sins we face. Paul said in Romans 7, What shall we then say? Is law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. In other words, it revealed me. His need for salvation. For I would not have known about what? Coveting. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. Wow! He was trying to get the man to understand this. The law is not merely dealing with external acts. It also includes an internal disposition. You remember a sermon on the mount? And Jesus was teaching about murder and adultery. And Jesus mentions those two in his first list. And, and on the sermon he said, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit adult, I mean not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say, everyone who is angry in the heart, in the mind, with his brother shall be guilty before the court. You have also heard it say, you shall not commit adultery. But I say that anyone who looks on a woman inside, the internal, the heart, to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Here's a man who believes that he has kept the law. Jesus has already told us the law is not merely about external, but internal dispositions and this man is blind to his own sin his own condition but aren't we all so often he's blind to what the word of God teaches he doesn't know his heart and he replies to Jesus all these things I have kept in verse 20 he had deceived himself for he was lying to himself and the sad thing about this is he believed this lie. Daniel Patrick Mullahan, I believe is how you pronounce his last name, a senator from the state of New York, 
an advisor to President Nixon at one time, wrote an article, and this is why I took the title there, Defining Deviancy Down. And this is so very important. This is what we do. Define deviancy. Defining it down so that when we sin, we don't call it sin any longer. He went on to say that that is what we do with our stats on crime. We keep redefining crimes, and that is why our crime stats are lower, because they are no longer crimes. We keep redefining what crime is, and that brings our crime stats down. But we do this with sin, don't we? Sin is sin. We create a new normacy. This was what the man who came to Jesus was doing. He was defining deviancy down. Down to a level where he claimed to have kept the laws, really. And the young man asked, what do I lack? In verse 21, Jesus tells him, if you wish to complete in other words, uh, this is what you lack, or be complete, go and sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So, Jesus tells a rich young, young ruler, sell your possessions and give it to the poor. Is that how we enter heaven too? That's, that sounds like good works. Selling what we have and giving it to the poor? No. Jesus is going to the man's heart and not his bank account. Jesus is dealing with the man's self-sufficiency. He claimed to have kept the law, and we know that that's impossible, at least impossible as far as man is concerned. So Jesus deals with the heart that was revealed in his claim. If a man had kept all the law, then he would not be you know, hanging on to his possessions like this man was. Instead, he would be helping the poor with it. And it shows his covetousness. This was the very command Jesus chose not to mention because he gave the man a chance to see his failure. But he gives him an invitation. Go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Jesus had previously taught that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do not lay up for yourself treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This man had not heard this before, had he? Certainly. He was a ruler and had been trained in the law. Jesus had told his followers earlier, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added to you. Jesus gives a man an invitation to the kingdom, just like he did the disciples and others. Come follow me. Anyone who wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The rich young ruler responded by going away grieving for he was one who owned much property. He chose the treasures, his possessions of this earth to be 
his heart desires. The here and now, what he had worked so hard for, and not the treasures that he laid up in heaven, or was to lay up in heaven. Well, the reason for rejecting Jesus' invitation, truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's hard. It doesn't mean that they cannot be saved. It just means that they are more likely to be self-sufficient, not in need of help for salvation, as a child is. Jesus goes on and illustrates his point. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, that's impossible. You think you can get a camel through an eye of a needle? Picked one of the biggest animals there was, didn't he? <laughs> you know, in no way. That would be impossible. Well, if you can't earn heaven by wealth or good works, which a young man hoped to do, and if every desire of our hearts, even for good things, is actually a fatal desire because it keeps us from dependency and acting in humility, then the disciples were wondering, who can be saved? And Jesus answered the disciples, with men it is impossible, but with God all things are impossible. Man cannot in his own sufficiency win the favor of God. Since it's impossible for men and women to save themselves, the only saving power is the grace of God. That's it. All works righteousness, man-made attempts are worthless. Every human is unable to be righteous because of his fallen state. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good, no, not one. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. God is a God of the impossible, though. Thank God for that. Amen. What God can do, we cannot do. He says, where then is boasting? Paul uh, does in Romans 3. It is excluded. By what kind of law or of works? None. But by the law of faith you come. Just by faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. In other words, we don't do away with the law. It brings us to Jesus. We show, it shows us how far short we fall. And we're to live according to the way God would have us to live. This man was trying to be saved by works, even works that claimed to keep the commandments. It would be impossible, but thanks to be to God, he is a God of the impossible. By his grace we are saved. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves is a gift of God. Not of works. Lest we should boast. Does that do away with the law? No. It's a law that shows us how weak and unable we're able. To, I mean we are. To, uh, to obtain uh, salvation on our own. Our own merits. It's impossible. It is unmerited. Undeserved. For us to enter into eternal life with God, it has to be God doing it. We've got to humble ourselves as little children, realizing our dependency on God and by faith trust in Him, His works and His promises. Praise God. He reaches out to us. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads in prayer.
Father, thank you for your wonderful love and your grace, truly your love and grace. For, Lord, when we are unlovable, you still reach down, and in your mercy you, and in your love and grace, you provide for us a way. And that way is through Jesus Christ, the only way, the way that you provided, the way that you've offered. And God, we thank you for that. We thank you that it's not anything that we can do because we'd always be falling short. But it's the work that you've done on the cross. So I just pray that if any need Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they'll understand that they can't do it on their own. Their own self-sufficiency won't work. It is by the grace of God. It is dependency like a little child coming in faith, humbling themselves before the Lord, recognizing their sinful state, recognizing that they can't be saved on their own merit, they don't deserve it, and reaching out in faith to you and saying, God, forgive me, save me, make me a new creation in Christ. Help those that need Christ today to understand that. And Lord, help us to understand that Our walk of faith is still a walk of faith. Humbly, dependently, relying upon you. It's not being saved and then living self-sufficiently apart from you. It is being dependent upon you always. So help us as believers realize that also. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. God's dealing with your heart and your soul. If you uh, feel led to come and kneel at the altar, then you come today. Far dearer than all that the world can impart was the message that came to my heart. How that Jesus alone for my sin did atone and Calvary covers it all. Calvary covers it all. My past with its sin and stain my guilt and despair jesus took on him there and calvary covers it all amen calvary covers it all aren't you glad that you can be regenerated that you can be transformed that you can be born again you're not like that scorpion amen amen Okay, our nature, we have a new nature in Christ, praise God, only because of him. Okay, brother. Praise the name of Jesus. Praise the name of Jesus, he's my rock, 
He's my fortress, he's my deliverer, in him will I trust. Praise the name of Jesus.